Hello and welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I'm broadcasting from WOUF Woof Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Glad you guys could be here. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or that follow button, go ahead and do so right now. New episodes come out every Wednesday and you are going to want to check them out. Our YouTube channel is launching really soon, so be sure you check back for details on that. You can follow me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast. And hey, if you love what you're hearing, give me that five-star rating. Yes, I'd greatly appreciate it, guys. Now, today on the show, changing up your training tools. Yes, adapting. That's what training is about. Sometimes we have to adapt, readapt. We have to change our tools up, uh, think about things from a different perspective, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, then comes a reintroduction. Been a little bit of time since, you know, I've given you guys a little background information on myself. We probably have a lot of new listeners and just want to give you guys that info on where I came from and how I got into this. Then comes the first pets followed by the listener Q&A. And if you guys have questions for the listener Q&A, you can email me questions at speakadogcast.com or feel free to message me on social media as well. Now, before we get going, got to give you that trivia question for today. And today's question is going to be, what is a female fox called? Yes, what is the name for a female fox? I will give you the answer to that question somewhere in today's podcast, so be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the show. Next on Speak a Dogcast, changing up your training tools. So I'm not sitting here and saying, I have found some new magical tool for you guys. It's going to fix all your problems instantaneously. Nothing like that. Uh, no, it's still going to be the tried and true methods and the tried and true tools. However, right? I don't just recommend one kind of collar, right? I mean, I do tell you most, most of you out there are going to benefit the best from using a Martingale collar with your dog. That's not to say all of you. That's to say most of you. There are certain instances, certain times, certain scenarios, dog sizes, whatever, uh, the behaviorally, the case may be that maybe we need to use a different tool, uh, use a different collar. So that's the thing. You have to adapt your training, your training tools to whatever is going on behaviorally with your dog. And again, even just the size and the breed of the dog. That's, that's a part of it. But that doesn't mean we're going to stick with one tool and only going to use that tool for the duration of the dog's training and life. That's not necessarily, uh, not necessarily the case. And actually, we're going to talk about uh, a client of mine who is maybe feeling, and you know, rightfully so, and this is this is just it. Training's a little back and forth. Actually, let's let's talk about my experience with it first. Nemo, Captain Nemo. Okay, he's my blue tick coonhound. For those of you that don't know, in a nutshell, he was a rescue dog that came to us with a ton of baggage. He was returned multiple times. A slew of issues of anxiety, not being able to walk on leash, no focus, counter surfing, paws up on the counter. He couldn't be in the car. He would lose his mind. He'd be anxious. He would lash out at cars. He was a little snippy sometimes with dogs and people when we first got. Uh, just, just so many things, so many things going on there. So I started with a Martingale collar with him, right? And the Martingale collar was not necessarily getting us the success that we needed. And so from there, I can always move up to a choke collar. And then from there, there is the prong collar. That's the most extreme I ever go. I don't use shot collars, nothing like that. But on the rare occasion, yes, we do have to use a prong collar. Now, Nemo's a big dog. He's a blue tick coonhound. If you know anything about the breed, very determined, very strong. And then we add an anxiety and potentially some trauma. Well, I don't know exactly what happened to him. We don't know his story. But guys, from a behavioral standpoint, I can tell you a lot of bad crap happened to this dog before the rescue got a hold of him, okay? So just knowing that, his brain is so 
his brain was, should I say, was so accelerated that he just, he didn't stop and he almost needed to be snapped out of it. And especially if he was lunging and barking at something like a car, that's really what it was. It was, it was cars. We needed a tool that was going to allow us to redirect that focus and that behavior. And if we go back to the rules of psychology, if I just follow the rules of psychology, guys, how do we get behavior to decrease? We use punishment. What's the definition of punishment? Anything an animal works to avoid. All right, so stay with me here. So if the definition of punishment is anything an animal works to avoid, then I, could, I, I can come to the conclusion that in order to decrease behavior, in order for something to be a punishment, the animal has to want to work to avoid it. So if I'm using a collar that the dog does not care about in the slightest, I'm making corrections and they, they don't, whatever. For example, when people use a regular old snap nylon collar, right? And the dogs are just pulling and choking themselves and it's not really working. They're not working to avoid it and they continue choking themselves and pulling you down the road, don't they? So that's a prime example of something, a collar, that is not a form of punishment, even though we kind of want it to be. That's the intent, even if you don't realize it, buying the collar, that's kind of the point is to get the get the pulling and the uncontrolled and running away. All that, the whole reason we leash up a dog to begin with, no matter what tool you're using, right, is to decrease undesired behavior from the dog. Think about that, guys. Think about that. Okay. Very, <laughs> all right. So, but let's, let's stay on topic. So again, I have a collar on this dog, Nemo. Uh, the Martingale collar is not working. It's not enough. He doesn't want to work to avoid pulling, lunging, being crazy, potentially even putting himself in dangerous situations, right? By bolting after cars. So you can try to redirect that behavior with food all day long, guys, because I can hear some, well, did you use, of course we use food. But what happens when the dog doesn't care about food because he's so intent? There's so much trauma that his brain is stuck. We have to jolt him out of that. So we did. We had to go up to a prong collar for a little while with Nemo. And that's the point I'm trying to make for a little while. It was a temporary tool that needed that we had to, you know, again, we tried, we started with the Martingale collar, said, okay, he's not working to avoid it. The Martingale collar is not enough. Went up to a choke. He didn't even care about the choke collar, prong collar. Okay. Once we put the prong collar on, all of a sudden, it took, well, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I will say there was, there was a difference all of a sudden with the prong collar, but it still took two to three months of work with that prong collar, using it properly, understanding how to utilize the tool to get Nemo where we needed him on the walks. Now he's actually a pretty good walker. Occasionally the nose takes over a little bit, but you can redirect him and get him back. He's a hound, guys. Uh, let's not forget that. He's a blue tick coon hound and the nose knows. Okay. So he's, he's night and day. I mean, we're not even in the same universe of dog <laughs> from where we started with Nemo to where we are now. And I'm telling you without that prong collar for a little while, without that prong collar for a couple months, whew, we would have had a hell of a time snapping him out of it, guys. That's just, the, that's just the truth. But with that prong collar, it allowed me to create control, redirect his focus and, and teach him some stability, quite frankly. Okay, so knowing that, knowing that, that's what gets me the result. Understanding that tool, knowing how to use it, knowing the result it's going to get. Okay, so two or three months with the prong collar, guess what we did? Went back to the martingale collar. He's had the martingale collar on ever since, and he's great. He's actually really good on the walks now. You know, again, we're still working on occasionally a little bit with him. But no, look, I, I walked down um, a road that we live near. Uh, luckily, I can safely walk very far away from the road, but it's because it's it's a 45 mile an hour road. Cars are going, and that that used to set Nemo into it. I mean, it just just red zone going after the cars, and now we can walk down this road with these cars whizzing by, and 
he's awesome. He's, he's awesome. Okay. So, and again, we got the Martingale collar. So that's the point guys, you have to adapt your training. Sometimes it changes. Sometimes your training, uh, you have to use a little bit of a, maybe a more intense tool for a little while just to be able to back off of it later. That's, it's kind of funny because that's the concept of punishment. It, I, I have, you know, people who hesitate, oh, I don't know if I want to use the Martingale, even a Martingale collar. I get, oh, I don't know if I want to use the Martingale collar. Guys, come on. And it's so funny because once you put the Martingale collar on the dog and you give them a reason to stop lunging at other dogs, imagine that. They they usually stop lunging at other dogs if you can do it correctly, trained, consistent, right? And I get, I get people who, who fight me on it. And I'm like, look... This is the way this stuff works. I didn't make up the definition of punishment. I didn't make up the definition of these concepts. This isn't something I created out of thin air. This is how it works. So my tool has to match that, right? Um, all right, so let's not let's not get too much off on a tangent here. But the other example I wanted to give today is I had a client recently who now this is the opposite end of it. Okay, this is the this is the different side of it, different take on changing our tools and why. With Nemo, we had to up it. With this dog, we needed to take it back. Now, there's a lot of factors coming into play here, and so I, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to give you the whole story, but I'll get, try to give you the quick rundown. In a nutshell, we have a very large dog who's very strong. And it's funny because the owner can actually take this dog out in other places and all as well, like in the public or go downtown or what have you. But in their neighborhood, they have a very unique setup um, at least for Ari, I mean, not, not unique. I don't know what you want to call it. There, there's a median in their neighborhood all around. And this median has big plants. And I mean, it makes it very difficult for the dogs to see through. And so if they start seeing a dog from the distance through this, it almost makes them want to like look for it more and it intensifies and amplifies it. Now, this dog always had a problem from the start before I started working with uh, reacting toward other dogs and people and sort of snowballed a little bit. And the interesting thing is, you know, we had to up it months ago. We had to up our training to a prong collar because it is a big dog. Okay, it's a big dog. And we've got to be able to physically control this dog. And so the 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 going up to the prong collar allowed us to gain that control. However, we've still been kind of fighting this uh, reaction in the neighborhood. And the owner definitely made a very, you know, I love it. He's, he's thinking about it. He's thinking about it critically. He's trying to approach it from a behavioral standpoint, perspective. I'm going, is, 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 is the collar potentially making things worse right now? Stay with me here, guys. Look, I'm, I'm a professional. This is what I do. But at the end of the day, sometimes you, you have to change your training up. You can't just have this one end-all, be-all tool, throw the prong collar on that big dog, it's going to fix everything. Not necessarily. And sometimes I have to read the training and go, hey, we need to adjust. You know, we were at this point a month ago, but we're at a different point now. And we have to look at the training, look at the behavior, look at the tools we're using and see if they're still helping us. And if we find we're hitting a wall with our training, and sometimes this happens, we have to step back and go, okay, what can we change up here? What can I change and adjust or add, take away um, to see if it makes a difference? And it's a poignant thought that the client had going, hey, could the prong collar be making this worse now because the brain is so intensified? Could the prongs actually be making it amplified? Yes. Yes is the answer. It can. This is why I don't go straight to a prong collar, guys. This is why I fully admit the prong collar is not my favorite tool to use. My biggest gripe with a prong collar, my biggest gripe is that the pressure... The pressure from the prong, I could argue that it, it's always there and it never completely disappears. Because if you're familiar with a prong collar, the way it attaches, I mean, those prongs are just, they're sitting on the neck. And sure, it doesn't, it's not constricting it, but, you know. But I can't ask the dog 
hey, how much do you work to avoid just that pressure on your neck? I can't. That's why I don't go to the prong collar often, because to me, there's too many variables I can't control. And that's where there is this, hey, maybe we should go back to the martingale collar for a little while. See what happens. See if it brings the intensity down a little bit, because inadvertently, now that pressure might actually be creating a little bit of tension. And that dog could be feeling the tension and getting more amped because we already have, again, there's a lot of factors coming into play. This is not a single scenario. I can't just tell you guys, hey, your dog reacts to other dogs. Don't use a prong collar. That's not at all what I'm saying. It's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is every dog is different. Every scenario is different. And you have to treat it as such. So adjusting your tools, adjusting your collar, adjusting how many treats you're using. Maybe you shouldn't be using treats in a certain instance. Uh, these are very important things to take into consideration. I'm going to give you another example. Uh, years ago, I had a dog that really had some very bad, very severe aggression issues. I've actually, I did a segment on her a long time ago. I don't even remember. I mean, this was probably even possibly single digit episodes. Uh, it was a long time ago, but it was about this dog, Betty, because Betty was a very unique experience for myself in, in training and um, was a great success story. And like I said, Betty had some severe aggression issues. And so I'm going to try to make this long story short. I took her for a boot camp. She came in my care for a while. And Betty didn't like strangers. She didn't like people she didn't know. And Betty sure as hell didn't trust me when I took her, right? Because that was that was the MO of her behavior. And um, again, trying to make a long story short, for the first month I had this dog, she she wanted nothing to do with me. Her, her fear was so strong and so severe. She wanted nothing to do with me. She wanted nothing to do with anybody. As a matter of fact, she was happy in her crate. She'd go right in, lay down, and honestly, we were dealing with a little depression as well. She was definitely depressed. She was anxious. We had a lot of things we had to conquer. And in Betty's mind, as a simplist as a dog, simplistic as they are, she said, "This works for me. I'm going to keep doing this." We had to snap her out of it. Okay, took a month. Took I'm not. <laughs> took a month for this dog to start trusting me more. Okay, it took a, a couple days to earn some basic trust, but to really form that bond and relationship to let her know I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, not here to try to hurt you. I'm here to try to help. Um, for a case like her, and she was a seven, eight year old dog when we started. So, you know, this has been practiced for years, her behavior. Um, but again, okay. So sorry, nutshell. And I'm here. I am going off on a tangent. Uh, after a month where she really was not loving me, was not loving me, she wasn't loving anybody. All of a sudden, a month into working with her, this dog had loved the crate, had no problem with it, went in, never made a peep, never barked, never whined, nothing. All of a sudden, because she's starting to like me, she developed some separation anxiety with me. And this happens, right? We, we, were, we were at one extreme over here where she like can't stand me. And now all of a sudden we bounce over to this extreme where she's like obsessed with me. And we're going to bounce back and forth until we find that middle ground of relaxation, right? We have an extreme aggression over here, extreme uh, attached, you know, Velcro-ness over here, kind of the same thing. If you've ever heard me talk about fight and flight, fight and flight are the same thing. We're not going to get into that today. Um, but they're the same avoidance mechanism, okay? So we have fight and flight. And if a dog is really over here to one extreme, and again, I know I'm doing it on my video. We're going to get these videos up soon, guys. Uh, YouTube, all these all these segments, all my podcast segments uh, are going to be coming up on YouTube. I have to plug that for a second so you can get some more visual to it. Anyway, over here on one extreme, we have the aggression over here. We have the opposite end. And what our hope is, is that if I'm spending all this time, you know, with this dog with severe aggression and she practices the opposite end of that, that she doesn't normally practice, believe it or not, her having separation anxiety with me a month in is a success. It's not what I want long term, but it's a win in the right direction because the next time she's going to go back to less aggression and then the next time she'll go back to less anxiety over me, 
so on and so forth, until we find the middle ground, until we find relaxation, until we find peace. And these anxious dogs that are traumatized like this, they have to be taught that. They have to be shown that. And so that's just it. My tools, my training, I have to adjust it as I work with her, as our relationship develops, right? Does that kind of make sense to you guys? I can't just, you know, look, I'll give you another example. There's another client um, who, let's again, make a long story short. If I can, I'm terrible at that. Uh, <laughs> they have a rescue dog. Dog is scared of the world, scared of strangers, is obsessed with one owner, terrified of the other one. And they've made some progress with the dog, but they hit a wall. They hit a wall in the training. And, you know, they, they didn't, <laughs> maybe we should, you know what, maybe we won't give this example today. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> I have my reasons. Um, guys, the point is you have to adapt your training and change it. You can't just keep doing one thing and go, well, it got me this much success, so it's going to get me this. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You can't just do what what's what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and expecting a different result. Right? If you keep getting the same result over and over, guys, and it's not what you're looking for, you have to change up your training. And that most likely comes down to training training tools. And let's talk about on that point, let's go back to Betty for a second. Training tools. The crate is a training tool. Talked about that before. It's it's a it is it's a form of of uh, restraint. It's a form of being able to teach a dog to not be anxious, to be housebroken. There's so many things that come with the crate that are wonderful, and it's a training tool. Okay, so with Betty, at first she loved the crate. Then she didn't love the crate. I started to make it. A, I got a little tricky. I put a camera in the bedroom that she was crated in, and then I put a treat dispenser inside the crate. And one of these automatic, you know, like remote control treat dispensers. And anytime she relaxed and laid down. Click, boom, treat. Treat dispensed itself. It took another, I want to say month, I don't, I don't really remember, because again, we had all of a sudden this anxiety develop, and we had to kind of get rid of that. Uh, but Betty was, a, Betty was a severe case, guys. This was She was no joke. She was serious. Um, she really was. So this wasn't like, but, but to that point, sometimes anxiety and aggression thing you know, can take a lot of time uh, to come around. But anyway, started reassociating what the crate meant to her. Right, We started reconditioning what the crate meant. Anytime you relax in the crate, you get a reward. And before you know it, we were able to actually start crating her again without any issues. Before you know it. Took a little while. I am. <laughs> okay. But it's understanding how to manipulate these training tools and change them up. I didn't start with a treat dispenser in the crate for Betty. Absolutely. There was no reason to, first of all. Uh, second of all, well, yeah, more to the point, I didn't want to make the crate that much more desirable. She already loved the crate and was terrified of me. If I made the crate that much more desirable, she, do you see she's not going to like being out of the crate even more? Problem. So it's knowing when to, when to introduce these training tools and when not to introduce them. Very, very important to your training, guys. So, you know, my point really here is don't be afraid to experiment with different training tools. Look, I, I have clients that go out and buy every training tool under the sun before they meet me. I mean, seriously, every harness you can imagine, every, the gentle leader, the this, the halter, the every, I've seen, I just saw a new harness I'd never seen the other day. It's like this one full rope thing where it attacked, there's not even a leash, the leash is part of the harness and like, my God, it's, it's supposed to stop them from pulling. Did it? No. Um, <laughs> people buy the craziest crap when it comes to their dog training. And at the same time, I encourage you to try it, guys. I encourage you to go try all these tools if you want to, right? 
change it up, see what works. Like I'm never one to knock it. If something works and it's beneficial to you and the dog, who am I to say no? You know what I mean? Like that's that's how I see it. But that's why I'll say I'm anti-shot collar because I don't think it's beneficial to the dog and I don't think it's the proper tool. But if something like a gentle leader works for you, not my recommendation, but to each his own. Um, you know, that that's kind of my philosophy on it. But more to the point, I want you to change your tools up to better adapt to training your dog. Understand what your dog's needs are through the concepts of psychology, reinforcement, punishment. Understand what your dog needs are, and that's how I want you to adapt and change your training tools, okay? So I kind of hope that makes you think about your training a little different. I love my clients out there that are thinking about their training critically. They're thinking about it from a different perspective, trying to apply the behavioral concepts, behavioral terms I give them, and it's fantastic. And that's why they're starting to see, you know, that's why I see it in a different light. Take that knowledge and apply it, guys. Okay. So good luck out there in your training. Change those tools up and work, use what works best for you and your dog. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and now offering virtual training as well. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. Located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Next on Speak a Dogcast, a reintroduction. So it has been over 100 episodes. We're on episode 108, and it's, I mean, it's incredible. Like, it's awesome. It's so unbelievable. And I have to just reach out and say thank you to all of you again for listening, for contributing, uh, questions to the listener Q&A, ideas for segments. It's really just been fantastic, and I'm so appreciative to all of you out there for listening. So thank you again. We've actually reached 140 5,000 downloads. Like, I I can't even believe it. 145,000 downloads of Speak a Dogcast. So, thank you guys so much again. Look, if you love what you're hearing, don't forget to give me that five star rating. Go ahead and scroll on down, give me a little review. I'd really appreciate it, guys. And it's only going to help the podcast grow. Speaking of growing, that YouTube channel, it's launching really soon. You guys are going to want to check back. Follow me on Instagram for more information. Listen in on, on the podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast. So, Awesome, awesome stuff, awesome content coming in 2023 for you guys, so be sure you stick around. Now, uh, you know, reintroduction. What we're talking about is a little bit about me. Um, you know, look, I, I did an introduction segment way back, literally the very first segment of the podcast, and so I just kind of wanted to give you guys a little more information about myself, where I came from, my experience, and quite frankly, how I got into this, right? How I got into this crazy animal industry. I, I actually do get that question pretty often. It's like, how, how did you get into dog training? How did you end up working with exotic animals. And um, I don't think it's that interesting of a story, but uh, (laughs) 
this is where I came from, right? So look, I, I was born and raised in Orlando, Florida. That's where I'm originally from. And I am definitely a Florida boy. What can I say? I love the beach, love the mountains too. But man, I love my Florida sunshine. So uh, yeah, born and raised. Look, when I was in college, I was a psychology major. And I was a psychology major who didn't want to be a psychologist. I really didn't want to work with people in psychology. Never really occurred that I could go the animal route, right? Growing up, you kind of think animals, you think zoologist, maybe veterinarian, kind of that biology side, which it just didn't interest me when I was younger. So I, I hadn't made that connection at an early age. And it wasn't until I was in school and I'm kind of going, gosh, what do I want to do? I don't know. And my wife actually pushed me to watch some dog training on TV, whether it was Caesar or maybe even Victoria Stowell a little bit. And I'm not getting into my feelings on them today. And that's fine. Uh, but it did help me connect the dots. It helped me connect the dots that I could combine psychology and animals. Moreover, I could work for myself. And that was a big plus for me. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you know, <laughs> so it, it really just kind of stars aligned, click light bulb going off over the head of that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go train dogs and I'm going to work for myself and it's going to be awesome because I love animals and I love psychology. Cool. So how do you do that? <laughs> uh, look, I, I started, I started by reading books. It's that simple. I started by reading some, some dog training books, watching a little more on even TV, YouTube, finding some videos and quite just putting it into practice, using my own dogs to, to practice, to work on it, to, to practice the walk, to, to master the walk commands, a focus, a recall, started with a lot of the basic stuff. And then I formed a business, an LLC, and I just started going, you know, advertised, handed out cards, and you get a few phone calls, you know, it wasn't a ton of phone calls at first, it was far and few in between. And there was def definitely some trials, tribulations, not all great successes, um, definitely some on-job learning, right? And it was awesome. I mean, really, you know, even through the failures, it was awesome because it was such a great learning experience to go out on my own like that and fail to some degree and succeed as well, right? So I did that for about a year or two, and then I was lucky enough to be introduced to another behavior specialist by the name of Brian Giese. Great guy, phenomenal animal trainer, guys. Unbelievable eye for it. Uh, he's a bit older than I am, too, so he had more experience, which was really great that I could learn from him, and so I was able to shadow with him. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we just, we really got along. We saw eye to eye and it was a lot of fun to train with him in such an incredible learning experience. He gave me that technical background that I was missing. You know, he, he said that I, I, when I was younger, I had a good eye, good feel. Couldn't explain what the hell I was doing though. What do I tell you guys all the time? You have to know what you're doing. You have to understand uh, the training you're trying to implement if you want to implement it and you want it to work, okay? So I had to learn that lesson as a young trainer. I did. I had to learn that lesson that, look, you got good feel and that's wonderful and all, but what is a treat? What is a leash? If you don't know the answer to that, you're not going to be training your dog like you could be, okay? Um, so I got that uh, uh, that knowledge and then, you know, still doing, the, doing my training thing. And I realized I really wanted more experience working with a wide variety of animals. Look, I'll tell you a little story. When I was a little kid, I would say probably about five years old, uh, we went to Universal Studios and they have an animal show there. And I remember sitting there and watching this hawk just fly down right over our heads and then land on the trainer's glove and the wings out. And, he, and I'm just going, wow, that, that, is, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want to do that. You know, like I want to do that. And I'll tell you, I got to do that. Um, I got to work there. And that was the coolest thing. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. I mean, honestly, like getting a little getting a little chills there, you know, because it was such a neat thing to see that as a kid and be in such awe and say, man, I want to do that. And then how many years later I got to, I got to go and do it about 20 years later, actually. Wow. Uh, so 
it was such a neat experience to work there because I got to work with such a wide variety of animals, so many different dogs, cats, pigs, otters, birds, birds of prey, hawks, owls, vultures, uh, skunks, primates. I mean, there were so many different animals that I got to have this hands-on learning experience with that we cared for, that we worked uh, with day in and day out. And it was awesome. It was unbelievable. I learned so much and it really allowed me to develop my, my training chops, if you will. You know, It improved my timing. It improved my perspective. It really let me see all this stuff that I had learned and putting it into action. So cool. Um, you know, at other points, I was able to work with an exotic animal rescue. I got to work with even bigger animals. That was so cool. Uh, worked with them for a little while and volunteered there. And went back out on my own. I was doing more dog training, building the business. That's when I started doing boarding and boot camps and doggy day camps. And really, it's just kind of grown from there. Now, I was in Orlando for, uh, what, after college, about six and a half years after school. My wife worked at Disney for a long time. And, uh, well, you actually, excuse me, that was one house. We were in Orlando for about 10 years. I was like, wait, six and a half is not right. That's not long enough. Uh, <laughs> we were in Orlando for about 10 years. And then my wife had a change of career, and it brought us to beautiful Palm City, Florida, where we are now, the location of Wolf Studios. So it's it's been an awesome ride. And now, yeah, for the most part, I'm doing dogs, sometimes cats, get a phone call for birds, done some volunteering here and there. Um, and and I, I love it. I do. I love working with animals. Every day is it's fun, you know, for the most part, right? There are the days when the when I have a puppy who's just not getting the house breaking. <laughs> That's not as much fun. Or we do maybe have an aggressive dog or something like that. Look, I love conquering the challenge, but hey, in the midst of it, sometimes it can be it can be a lot, right? Uh, I work a lot too. There is the downside. Sometimes you work a lot. I got dogs in the house all the time that are being trained, um, but it's fun. I love it. Uh, I work for myself and I work with dogs. I mean, it's it's pretty great. So, you know, I look, if any of you guys are out there interested in becoming an animal trainer, a dog trainer, anything like that, feel free to reach out to me with any questions. I maybe can help push you in the right direction. Um, but one of the best ways to start is if you are in school, start with like a psychology program. Um, look, I, I, I'll admit, I, I'm not up to date on every school's, every college's uh, psychology program in the country. And some, I'm beyond that and have no kids. So <laughs> not really looking into that quite as much. So there actually could be more programs now for animal behavior. There just really weren't when I was in school, not many undergraduate programs at all. So uh, that, that's a good start is that psychology. But honestly, guys, the best thing you can do, go volunteer. Go volunteer at a dog shelter, an exotic rescue shelter if you're interested in the exotic animals. That's the best way to do it. Hands-on experience, learning from people who have been doing it for a very long time, okay? That's the best way to get started in an animal career. Go volunteer, go volunteer, go volunteer, go volunteer, go volunteer. Even if you don't want to be an animal trainer, please go volunteer, guys. Uh, it's a wonderful way to help out and, and be able to interact with animals and learn. Now, with that, I will say, don't forget, you're in an animal field. If you are not comfortable around poop or scooping poop or cleaning up messes or vomit or this or that, I think maybe you should rethink your career path. Because <laughs> no matter how long you work with animals, you'll always be cleaning up after them at least a little bit. So I'm warning you now, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, <laughs> Oh my gosh. But it's been an awesome ride. I mean, really, it's been so neat. And I would say this podcast has been one of the coolest evolutions out of this business that I've had. It's been such a learning experience for myself. 
And I really hope to take this journey further with you guys. So come join with me. Make sure you're hitting that subscribe button. Let me know what you're thinking. Give me that five-star rating if you love what you're hearing. And check back for the launch of our YouTube channel. Don't forget to follow me on uh, Instagram at Speak a dogcast. Got to give all the shameless plug that plugs, guys. And it, you know, I really, I appreciate everything from you guys. Appreciate all your help, all the listeners, all the questions. I can't thank you enough time. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I look forward to many more episodes with you guys on Speak a Dogcast. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's the first pets. Today on The First Pets, we'll be talking about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, he was the 40th president of the United States, serving from 1981 to 1989. Now, Reagan actually started off as a sports announcer and actor until he became governor of California in 1967 to 1975. And when the Reagans entered the White House, they brought no animals with them. Uh, but that's not to say they didn't have any animals. Yes, they actually had dogs and horses on their ranch back in California, but they opted to let them all remain there. Probably a good idea, you know, farm life type animals, farm life dogs. They're not going to be the happiest in D.C., and we've kind of learned that time and time again throughout this segment, haven't we? But at the ranch, they did have Victory. He was a male golden retriever. Peggy, a female Irish setter. Taka, a male Siberian husky. And Fuzzy, a male Belgian sheepdog. There were also a few horses that Reagan was known to ride around with on the ranch with his dogs close by his side. Now, the Reagans did finally get a dog during his presidency in 1984, when the 1985 March of Dimes poster child, Kristen Ellis, presented them with a Bouvier. Now, Nancy Reagan named the dog Lucky after her mother, Edith Luckett Davis. However, Lucky was moved to the ranch during the Thanksgiving of 1987 because he was becoming too large for the White House. There was one other dog that the Reagans had while in office, and perhaps Nancy was missing Lucky because the president gifted her with a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel for Christmas named Rex. The dog was named after Rex Scouten, the White House chief usher who had retired in 1985. Now, Rex lived at the White House for the remainder of the Reagan's presidency and then moved with them to their new home in LA. The answer to today's trivia question, what is a female fox called? A vixen. Yes, a female fox is known as a vixen. on Speaky Dogcast, it's the listener Q&A. The first question today comes from Clarice from Atlanta, Georgia. Clarice says, I work from home and sometimes my dog will come and lay in my office with me, which is fine. He comes in, curls up on one of his dog beds and quietly sleeps. However, sometimes I'll leave the office, close the door to the room and forget he's in there. He'll start scratching at the door and barking and I don't want him to mess up the door or have anxiety that I've left the room. How can I stop this? Good question, Clarice. You know, I like that you're worried about his anxiety and not just your door. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, how do you get him to stop? Look, you just got to correct him. I mean, you do. The problem with anxiety is they think they're supposed to practice it, and then if they don't really get told to kind of stop or jolt out of it, they're, they're going to keep practicing it. Um, I agree with you. I, I, I completely agree. It's the, you know, that's, ang that's an anxious behavior. It sounds like it's not just like, hey, I'm in here. It sounds like it's anxious and you know it is, right? Um, look, occasionally I would, I would do the same thing with my old golden retriever, Colby, and you would, it would take a while. I mean, it would take a while and you would just hear mm, a little tiny whine. That's it. 
He wouldn't scratch. He wouldn't bark at just a little whine. Uh, and that's that's what I prefer, right? And again, it would take a while. He didn't care if he was in there. But at one point, he's like, all right, I want to get out. Or, hey, I'm thirsty. Or maybe I need to pee. So that tells me it's not anxious. He just wants out of the room. If your dog is maybe asleep, doesn't notice you leave, and the second he wakes up, but is going over and scratching and barking. Yeah, different story, right? Um, so, okay, how do you get him to stop? You have to correct it. So what you're going to do is the second it starts, you got to open the door. This is the thing. You have to address it. You have to be there and be ready for it. Um, so you have to open the door, reach in, correct with a little touch correction, a little nip right here, right on the shoulder, just to the side of the neck, a little touch. No, right? Nice, sharp. No. Stand up, close the door, leave him in there. If he starts barking and scratching in, same thing. Open the door, touch correction. No, close the door. Okay. He'll learn very quickly. Well, every time I get anxious, she corrects me. Every time I don't get anxious, I don't get a correction. Okay. And then once you hear him give up and go and maybe relax, you'll hear him walk away from the door maybe, that's when you open the door and let him out. Let him relax for a little bit, then let him out. Because the problem is if you open the door and he's scratching and barking, we're only reinforcing the anxiety, which I think you already know, right? So we don't want to reinforce and strengthen the anxiety of him barking and scratching. Instead, we want to reinforce when he's calm. So if you leave him in there and he's calm, he's allowed to come out. If he's being anxious, you got to tell him no and still leave him in there until he relaxes. Okay, kind of hope that helps. Next question. This comes from Eric from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Eric says, my dog will not come to me when I call him in the backyard. If I shake a treat bag, he'll come, but he ignores me otherwise. We have a pretty big backyard and he'll play keep away from me like it's a game. What can I do to get him to stop? Another great question, Eric. Yeah, the recall. Look, the recall, the thing is, you can't bribe them. You know, and I think you, like I just said to Clarice, you might already know, you might already know this too. You know you shouldn't be bribing them with that treat bag. It's only going to make your life more difficult. Look, one of the best things you can do is just turn around and go inside. Don't try to get them to come in. Just turn and walk away from them, ignore them, and walk inside. Not always, right? This is just this is one of the tools we can try. Not always, but then the dog will realize you're not out there. This isn't as fun, and it'll come running back to the door. That doesn't always work. Some dogs don't care and just want to stay out in the backyard. Uh, so it sort of depends on the motivation of where your dog's at. But you can try that. And that way, when he comes to the door, you open the door, give him a treat, tell him good boy, and let him in. Okay, the key with the treats, let's talk about that next. The key with using treats is it needs to be an after the fact right? You can't bribe him using treats because then he's going to rely on that bribe. Then you're not really training a recall. Instead, you're just training him to ignore you until you have that back, until he hears that trigger noise, right? So you cannot absolutely not bring the treats out until he does the desired behavior. So for my example of turning and walking inside, he comes over to your door, you let him in and give him a treat. Well, isn't that the behavior we're looking for? He came back to you. You didn't bribe him there. He came to you and then you rewarded the behavior after the fact to strengthen that recall. Okay, so that's one way we address it. Another way is you put a long leash on your dog. Okay, they make these long training leads. It's like a normal nylon leash, but they come in 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 foot lengths. And depending upon the size of your backyard, depending upon safety, and we're gonna talk about that, uh, is gonna depend upon the size of the leash. Now, safety. Here's the thing. These leashes can be very dangerous, and so I have to give the disclaimer on if you're going to put a long leash on your dog, First of all, no children outside, none, zip, zero. No old people outside either, no frail mom that can easily get caught up and fall over or rope burn is gonna open her up and she'll bleed, you know? I mean, I'm just being serious and realistic here. Guys, kids and old people cannot be in the yard if you have a long leash on your dog, it can be very dangerous. It can be dangerous enough for a normal person. The thing is these ropes, when a dog starts running, uh, the leash can actually turn into a rope essentially, and if it hits your leg right, it can wrap around your leg, pull you out, rope burn you, 
bad things can happen. So I give the disclaimer on, if you're going to put a long leash on your dog, I need you to be aware of where that long leash is and be very, 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 very careful with operating around it. Now you can also just hold the long lead in your hand. You don't have to let go of it either. There's different options here, but I gotta give you that disclaimer in case we do drop it. Please be very careful with those long leashes. Now, when I train a recall, it's pretty simplistic. I hold the leash and I start reeling the dog in and call them, just call their name. Fluffy, come here, make that kissy noise, call their name. Fluffy, reel them in, give them a treat right in their face. Drop the leash, release them, say, all right, go ahead, let them do their thing again. When I see that they're not paying attention, I pick up the leash, I reel them in, Fluffy, call their name, reel them in, Fluffy, call their name, give them a treat. Notice the treat is not bribing. The treat comes in after the dog is at me. That's when the treat comes out and I give it to them. Guys, this is also why a treat pouch is really handy. This is why you gotta get a treat pouch. Got to. Because the problem is if you've got a bag of treats out there and you're and you're shaking it, then the dog hears the noise and comes running and it's associating the noise and you're still only bribing the dog. Treat pouch, there's no noise. Well, minimal noise maybe, right? But again, that noise doesn't even happen until I pull the treat out. Opening and closing of a treat pouch is what I'm remembering. Okay. Um, but if you have a bag of treats on you, it's clanking, it's crumbling the whole time. Are you really getting your dog's focus or are you bribing your dog's focus? Big difference. Okay. So something to think about. But um, the recall, really what it's about, Eric, it's about leashing your dog up on one of those long leads and not giving them the option to run away from you. Instead, pulling them in toward you and giving them a treat right away. Showing them running to me works a lot better for you, bro. Just come to me and get this food and love and praise. Okay. Uh, so... If you start doing that, stop making it a game. Don't play into what he's trying to get you to do. You'll have him come back to you pretty much uh, in no time. That's going to wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or follow button, do so right now. New episodes come out every Wednesday. You're going to want to check them out. Follow me on Instagram at speakadogcast. Our YouTube channel is launching soon, so be sure you check back. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget, get out there and walk your dog. Walk your dog.